Hi everyone, welcome to the room. We're just waiting for one other person and then we'll start. Actually, let's make a start. We've got 300 odd people in the room. I'm Kotha Hajat, um, a medical doctor and professor of public health and epidemiology. And I work on prevention and changing um, lifestyle behaviour for health. So I run a room every Thursday evening as part of Human Behaviour Club. And we're doing a behaviour change series. Last week, we had a session on men the mental health crisis, looking at mental health during lockdown and looking at mental health in men in particular. And I'm really delighted to have a panel with me today looking at uh, mental health in young adults. And um, I'm going to invite the panel to introduce themselves. Uh, we've got Sarah Ann Macklin, who is both a model and a role model as founder of the Be Well Collective that supports mental health in young adults. We have Dr. Paul Puri, who is a psychiatrist and also a TV writer for NBC's Chicago Med. And so he's going to be talking a little bit about the storytelling. We have Ben Bidwell, who is a founder of Men Without Masks and is a coach. And then we have Sophie Atwood, who is a senior behaviour change scientist. So if I can ask the panel to introduce their, themselves and their work a little bit, starting with Sarah. Sarah, we can't hear you um, at the moment. Maybe you've lost reception. Oh, can you hear me? Oh, yep, yeah, yeah, you're back. Oh, I'm not sure where I got to. Um, I'm not sure how much you heard of that introduction. Just the very beginning. So, yeah, start again. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry. Um, must be my bad, my bad internet. Um, so, as kindly introduced me, I am... Um, model I have been for the last 15 years and that led me about eight years ago to study nutrition and do my Bachelor of Science and I'm a registered nutritionist with the AFM and through that that led me to found the first and only not-for-profit organisation which supports mental health and nutritional well-being for young adults within the fashion and creative industries. Great, thanks, and uh, great to have you on board for your very first Clubhouse session, and we'll come back to you in a little while. Um, so um, next we have um, Paul. Sure, thank you. Uh, my name is Paul Corey. I'm a psychiatrist uh, in Los Angeles, um, and I do 
besides medication management, various kinds of therapy in my private practice, including hypnosis. And then I have other hats. Uh, people can read about my bio, but I also uh, am a TV writer. Um, I've written for the last three seasons um, on TV show Chicago Med um, on NBC. And then I've consulted on a dozen plus other um, produced film and TV projects. Great to have you with us again, Paul. And um, you do some work on mental health technology as well, so we will touch on that too. Um, ben, would you like to go next? Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Ben. Um, I work as a, a mindset and purpose coach. Uh, I found myself really pulled in the direction of masculinity and mental health um, with so much going on in the world around men. Um, and also as a man who's willing to really step up and, and, and let himself be seen, express my emotions, to, to embrace vulnerability, embrace all of the man that I am, which is perhaps different to the stereotypical man who is perceived to be unemotional and quite blocked off and uh, not willing to talk. And um, yeah, that's that's really a big passion of mine is to, to help men facilitate conversations from the heart. Um so, yeah, I think that's central to mental health, so it's a privilege for me to be part of this conversation. Thank you for having me. Always great to have you with us, Ben. Um, and uh, Sophie, last but not least. <laughs> Hello. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'm, I'm back here being <laughs> dragged on stage by Kotha. Um, I'm a behavioural scientist. I work in London, and I'm a Kotha's sometimes co-author. I do research in lots of different areas of behaviour change around health, so diet, activity, uh, smoking, alcohol, etc. And I'm here to help moderate tonight. So good to meet everybody. Okay, great. So as I mentioned, today we're going to focus on young adults and maybe I can give a little bit of context of the mental health landscape that we find ourselves in at the moment. So um, with lockdown and with uh, quarantine and other economic um, and relationship and work stresses that we've um, all experienced in the last year or so, uh, inevitably everybody's mental health has been um, somewhat affected. Um, the uh, formal data, etc., on um, mental health rates, suicide, etc., not we we would see those second order effects in the longer term, but we're starting to see um, the, the fallout. So, um, as children have gone back to school, there was an estimate that of every classroom of twenty four children, there will be four new cases of uh, mental health problems that did not exist before lockdown. Um, in Japan, there there have been more suicide cases than there have been deaths from COVID itself. And as we're coming out of lockdown, there seems to be a growing anxiety um, in people as to how they will cope going back to uh, normal lives and what their normal life will, will look like. Um, and um, so we want to also be positive and solution focused. And what we have seen is maybe more awareness that um, we can look after our mental health, that prevention is possible for mental health issues, and that um, there's a lot that can be done outside of the clinic setting. So 
um, in the technology world, mental health support has really been uh, rapidly growing. So um, I think there is room for optimism as well. And so today, if we focus on young adults and look at uh, the work that some people in the panel are doing, and particularly around um, role models and, and how um, we can help each other um, in terms of uh, looking after our mental health. So Sarah, maybe we can start with you and your thoughts on how important it is for role models to be role models ourselves and what the particular problems are that you, you see young people facing. Yes, absolutely. It's... Um... This was the title, actually, of my TED Talk that I did um, surrounding the influence of role models. And I think we always look up to role models as people that might be in the media or um, that we read in a magazine or we switch on the TV. But actually, role models are around us every single day and they influence us greatly. Um, so everybody on this panel and everybody listening is, is a role model to somebody around them. And I think that's a really important point to recognize is it's not always the media has the last influence but that's predominantly where I work and that's where I have worked within the last 15 years and and I've seen that influence um heavily and I've also been heavily influenced by it myself and working with these the young models and young creatives um within the industry you can see the pressures and the demands um that is placed on them and ultimately these are the people carrying um, the image to wider society. So I think it's a great importance that these young men and women um, do portray a healthy image to the to the society as a whole and to our next generation coming up because we know from social media and it's one of the biggest things that I see within the young men and women that we work with on a daily basis um, is the pressures from social media and the strains and that, that puts on their mental health and this perfect reality that we all seem to live in but is not actually portraying any much truth in it at all. So I think there's a huge contrast of from the last 10 years, especially now going more into the research side of things, when I was a model, um, just before social media launched and when it was launching, um, nutrition and health and well-being and mental health was not really talked about and I can definitely say mental health was heavily stigmatized and it was a very touchy subject now I think there's a lot of discussion around nutrition and well-being um, mental health is slowly becoming destigmatized but there's still a large stigma around that absolutely especially for males um, but what I do see is that now there's this huge pressure, especially on the younger generation, to live the perfect lifestyle on what they eat. And now there's a huge shame around if they're not eating how they should be perceived to eat on social media or, um, you know, the struggles that they seem to, to go through in their day to day lives. There's a large pressure, not just on models, but every single young adult has this influence on social media. So I think we kind of need to reevaluate going back into this world, actually the pressures of the last 12 months and the screen times that people have been exposed to has dramatically um, played a very large part on mental health struggles for young adults today. So that's really what we're seeing. We've, we've seen a huge rise in um, people struggling with eating disorders. Um, 
that's been one of the main things we've seen and a huge spike in um, anxiety just around people finishing university and not having a really secure route of work to go down um, and financial struggles. So I do think it's a really important topic for conversation. And um, again, I think anyone that's speaking openly, I know that Ben is a great role model in this sector, but really challenging kind of the day-to-day stigmas around mental health and, and being open about it and actually making people feel that they are normal if they're struggling in these really hard times is essential going forward as a role model. Um, some great points there, Sarah. And this, I've noticed as well, this great interplay between diet, mental health, and I guess for young adults, the issue around body image and how social media in particular um, has both, well, predominantly negative from, from what we hear um, uh, influence on that and we live in a, a time now where um, Instagram actually can determine what we are eating and how we are eating and we've <laughs> we found ourselves in a time where um, uh, what we eat and how we eat and how we live our lives is very much on display. Um, so I'll, I'll bring in some of the other panel members specifically on, on that issue. Anyone who wants to chime in? Yeah, I think that that's, <clears throat> Sarah, very so relevant because we very few people pay attention to the real interrelation between use of food as in how it affects them emotionally and both in terms of like a coping strategy, but also just the, the nature of their diet affecting sort of their baseline mental health. Or sort of when people feel bad, they might eat certain things to try to feel better. But then there's also just your baseline level of nutrition that I think is not is not thought of enough. So it's great what you're doing. Thanks, Paul. That's um that's really love to hear. I think the conversation surrounding mental health and food is one that's definitely expanding. Um, but I also I don't know how many other people feel this in the room or panellists feel this, but there's also a lot of misinformation out there as well um, around that. And I do think there's a huge connection to when we feel um, quite low or when we are stressed or anxious. It very much depends on the individual, but you go towards your comfort foods and things that make you feel quite safe. But if that becomes a regular habit and you are not having a a balanced diet then that can definitely hinder your mental health quite dramatically and there's such a large link between food and mental health as you know your brain is 60% fat and it's um needs that it needs specific nutrients delivered to it so I think there is a lot of conversations around it but again I'm sure many of you felt it's quite oversaturated sometimes with not always the the evidence-based information that we hope to see yeah, there's, sorry, Catherine. I just wanted to mention that there is a lot of more talk sort of emerging, at least in clinician circles, around the gut microbiome and the nature of sort, which for those that aren't familiar with that, is just sort of the, we all have bacteria living on our skin kind of across the board as well as in our gut. And there seems to be a relationship between the type and amount of bacteria that exist in your gut, what we call the flora, and um, the nature of your mental health, including aspects of depression and anxiety. And 
we haven't quite figured out all the causal relationships, meaning if you change your diet, will that change the microbiome or your sleep patterns or other things? But um, very likely it does. So that, I know that's being talked about a lot more. I don't know if you have more to add to that, Sarah. Yeah, you have uh, you've definitely hit the nail on the head there, Paul, with the gut microbiome. Um, I know that Koth has had Tim Spector in one of her clubs before, and he's definitely somebody I would recommend to go and read a little bit more on. Um, he's written over 900 journals and research papers, lots surrounding the gut microbiome. Um, but we know that, you know, our feel-good neurotransmitters, our hormones such as serotonin and dopamine are made within our gut. So we need to make sure that we're feeding that correctly. And that, again, the gut microbiome, um, we're still coming to understand it, but we do know it plays a very big prominent part in, in how we're feeding. Um, and our gut health is our second brain. So I say, yeah, it probably definitely needs another room, but I would definitely direct people to go and read some of Tim Spector's work because um, he's got some really interesting things to talk about that on the gut microbiome front. Um, absolutely right. Tim was with us a few weeks ago and uh, we talked a lot about um, cardiovascular health, obesity, diabetes and how your gut microbiome can influence that. We didn't touch as much on mental health, but he will be joining us again in the next few weeks. And so we will definitely uh, come back to that. <laughs> um, um, so... Uh, I want to move on a little bit to um, storytelling and maybe we can start with you, Paul. Um, how important is um, the messenger and how, how can we turn use stories to um, help both in the prevention and reducing the stigma around mental health? And through your work, how do we measure the impact that we can have through TV and stories? <clears throat> it's um there's a lot i guess i could i could go on for a long time so i'm going to try to to hit some basic ideas um one of which is that i think stories are kind of fundamental to our psychology and how we um learn understand ourselves our own narrative we create stories about ourselves we engage in in sort of vicarious experiences through other people um, and that that affects us um we did a, a very small um, survey-based study on our TV show just to see with viewers to see how much they integrated sort of medically accurate information um, and found that, you know, it improved people's knowledge base. Um, when I, you know, I was very affected by stories when I was growing up and, and by TV and film and always had an uh, interest in it. And then when I moved into um, psychiatry, I really got into the topic of hypnosis and the idea that we have ways of influencing other people and how we can do that in a, in a positive way. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. But, um, and I came and I just want to give a little bit of uh, additional context to this because I think in a lot of science and, and public health um, approaches, we get very focused, and medicine for that matter, we get very focused on the numbers and giving people facts as if that's the thing that is going to sway them to change their behaviors and sometimes it does but i think it neglects the other the other aspect if i tell if i if i'm talking with someone and choosing language approaches and i say you should do this my use of the second person of saying like you should do it actually creates very often a little bit of defensiveness from the other person and resistance 
Um, versus if I said, well, I do this, then the person could, if they like you, if they can feel connected to you or interested in you, then they'll see that you do it and then they might explore, well, what if I did it? And there's a, a level of adoption or exploration there that's different. It doesn't bring up the same kind of resistance. And then, you know, and this came up with a, a famous psychiatrist who died about 40 years ago, Milton Erickson. He used to just tell people stories and he would say like, you know, that reminds me of this story. And he would tell this sort of metaphorical anecdote that would have a different, you know, version, a uh, different kind of message built into it, but was so kind of indirect that it wasn't directly trying or wasn't, um, overtly trying to change someone's behavior, but someone could extrapolate the message from it um, as they sort of got engaged and engrossed in the story. And, and then they sort of took away what was, you know, ideally like a better healthy choice in some way or, or a, um, a realization about their own life. And I think there's a, a tremendous kind of opportunity that we miss in medicine and public health in terms of integrating storytelling in terms of um, influencing healthier behaviors with people. And I think that mental health is a very clear version of that. I'm going to shut up in a second because I've been talking now for a couple of minutes. But the, um, I think the, the ways that we present people, the way that we present um, figures who are struggling with mental health um, in a humanized way, as opposed to a cliche or, you know, a spectacle or something else um, is very important in terms of helping people to find avenues into understanding themselves and understanding how to um, explore this further. This is Paul and I'm done speaking. Thanks, Paul, and you're always welcome to take more time because uh, what you say is 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 quite unique, actually, and, and it's uh, uh, unique to find a, a doctor who understands uh, from the communication side as well as you do. Um, so we've seen that um, stigma is still very much an issue around mental health, um, and I think we saw that um, here in the UK around couple of incidents with Meghan Markle and others um, that, that took place. And in a way that did um, spark a lot of debate around mental health, um, some of it negative, but hopefully some positive as well. And again, I guess we come back to, to men in particular, where there seems to be more of a stigma around mental health. I don't know if you want to step in, Ben. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this all, all ties in really for me and everything that we've said so far, because um, there is a stigma for sure. It is changing through these conversations and, 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 you know, the shift that's going on at the moment in the UK, particularly, I don't know how it's in the rest of the world, but with with the, the death of Sarah, Sarah Everard um, and a real insight into the look of, of behaviour of men and, and how we're showing up in the world and, and the amount of destruction that we're causing and the amount of fear that we're causing. Um and, you know, for me, when we look at all of that, the origin at the very beginning is there is this perception as a young boy and, and we talk about storytelling as well. The story that I saw as a boy growing up was that if I wanted to thrive in this world and succeed as a man, then I needed to, to be strong and tough and brave and unemotional. And that was my way to thrive. And I had a mum who was a nurse who was very soft and loving and kind and sensitive. And that was what I saw in her, which was so beautiful for me. But I had to deny that. As a, as, a, as a boy, if I was to succeed, I was likely to be bullied if I was the soft, sensitive one, but uh, I was likely to thrive if I was strong and tough. And that was the, the, the story that was fed to me across society everywhere I looked. You know, I, I, the films I was watching in the 80s were 
Arnie and Sylvester Stallone, it was Terminator and Rambo and, you know, all these men if, everywhere I looked. And yet there was nowhere. Nothing told me a story of, of a man who thrived through connecting with his emotions and being soft and vulnerable and open and sensitive and kind and loving. All these human traits that uh, are central to us as human beings, not a masculine, feminine thing. Um, but we really demonised that as, as men. And that was a story that I really took on board, that we talk about mental health. I mean, the knock-on effects of that were that I stopped being authentic to myself. I had to be someone who I thought I, I should be. And I, and I stopped having alignment with the truth of the actual person that I was. And when we're not being true to who we are, we're disconnected. It's very hard to love ourselves, um, which is, for me, the foundations of a good like mental health state, if you like. So, um, so much of what I've listened to, and Paul always shares so beautifully, so I'm um, always grateful for him talking as much as he can and sharing everything that he's got. But so much of what I heard, yeah, all ties into this. And, and um, for me, in, in the space that I'm in, it matters so much to show up. And when I, when I do feel some sadness or I do have some challenges in my life that a lot of the time are outside of my control, as, we, as we've all experienced in the last year with COVID and so many things that the knock-on effects that we can't directly control but do impact how we feel. And in this space of, of uh, I think I, I think it is a, a term really, toxic positivity where, you know, none of us want to be, I don't know what the better phrase is, but the one that comes to me is a Debbie Downer, um, where we're bringing the bad vibes, the negative vibes, and we are in a position where we have to block out part of who we are and the truth inside of us because it's not seen as, as good energy or, or good vibes when it's just the truth. And it's the truth of who we are. And we stop being connected to the person we are if we're not able to express all of who we are. And the reality of life, especially in the times that we're in at the moment, is that we do all face challenges in different ways. And they're all relative, of course, to individuals. And some of us are very fortunate, even though we have challenges. Um, but the, the nature of life is that they're going to be highs and lows. We're going to have good days and bad days. And it should be okay to express and not, not, being, not, not losing ourselves as a victim to, to that emotion. That, that we're drowning and poor me, someone come and save me because I'm sad today. But just being able to own the fact that today is not such a good day and it's a bit of a struggle, or, or even this week is not such a good week, or this period is not such a good... And, and, and I'm okay with that, but it's just where I'm at at the moment. And that, for me, is a healthy expression that allows us to be all of who we are, which is central to our mental health. So, sorry, I hope I haven't gone off on too many tangents there, but this is um, a huge passion of mine. So thank you for listening. Uh, not at all, Ben. It's all very useful. Um, and uh, it's good to see that there are a lot of men in the audience as well, because uh, quite often with these rooms, it is um, female uh, dominant. But it's great that we have a mix today in the audience. Um, so um, I want to come to Sophie, who is from both a, um, a kind of theoretical and practical view, a real expert in how we really change behaviour. And uh, so, Sophie, if I can get your thoughts uh, on the messenger, be it um, a role model or messenger in a story and how that works in behaviour change. And then maybe we can move on to um, looking at resilience and uh, prevention as well. Um, I think Paul did a really good job of, of touching on this. Uh, role models and... Um, well, role models, firstly, are quite uh, interesting in how they work. I think they have a number of different ways that they function. Partly is to give us information on what and how to reach a goal. 
and partly also we can observe the outcome of their behaviour, something that we call in psychology uh, vicarious reinforcement or vicarious learning. So we get to watch this person either make the mistakes or win the praise and that can help us have some information about the likely outcome if we adopt a set similar course of action to the person we're observing. And a big thing that in terms of messengers um, and also with role models, you tend to get people more likely to change their behaviour with a given messenger or role model if they, and Paul mentioned this, perceive a degree of um, likability and similarity to the role model. So it's very important when you're using this technique that you, you get some kind of synergy between the audience you're working with and the messenger or role model, because really the person is going to have to want to emulate and kind of adhere to the, the normal behaviour that the role model is showing them. So that in mind, the different ways you can kind of test and play with that in research. So you can modify either like the degree of closeness of the role model. So is it someone that you really like? Is a very close family member? Is it a peer, someone in a peer group? Um, is it someone who's perceived as higher versus lower status on some kind of measure of something like sociability? Um, so I think that's the, the main keys really to do with role modeling. Um, what about age? So there seems to be a um, an age gap that's necessary, but not too wide an age gap. So not a generational age gap, uh, but maybe a few years. So that, um, uh, for example, somebody who's, who seems to have been in your shoes a few years ago, but has found a way uh, through that or, or found a way forward. Has there been any work looking at age and age gaps? I think there's been work looking at having a role model who's somebody who is slightly more advanced in where you are, again, because they can show you the pathway. I mean, Kotha, you're basically my mentor, which was interesting because I, I approached you a couple of years back to ask for your help. And that was partly, as you mentioned, I saw that you you charted a path that was one that I was interested to follow. So that's definitely I've, I've kind of a way that I've operated in my world. Um, I don't know whether that directly relates to age um, more so than general experience. So I would think that it's probably more around competency necessarily than having just somebody who's kind of older than you. Thank you. You're very kind, Sophie. <laughs> Um, okay, well, let's let's touch a little bit on prevention. So what can individuals do uh, to both prevent? Um, well, I don't want to say prevent, I want to really talk about looking after our mental well being, because it's something that affects everyone. It's not a, a cutoff or a binary. Uh, maybe we we'll start with um, Sarah. Yeah, that's that's a key point, isn't it? It's the prevention side. And I always um, think that's what we really need to start focusing on more than anything else because we go to the gym to look after our muscles and our body, but we don't, do, we don't look at our mental health in the same way. Um, and I really think we should. We tend to go to people for help when we're really struggling and you don't need to be at that phase to look after your mental health. So... I think we all have mental health um, and we should be looking after it. 
so for me, I mean, number one would have to obviously be nutrition, but there's many pillars looking after your mental health. And, and nutrition is definitely one of them of eating well. Um, that doesn't mean having the perfect diet by all means. It just means by trying to make sure that you fill it with colour, you become experimental, um, you try to guess at least 30 different varieties of fruit and veg, if possible, frozen are absolutely fine as well within your diet. Um, you know, reducing your alcohol consumption because we know that alcohol is a depressant and it's a pharmacological drug at the end of the day. So I know alcohol intakes have dramatically risen in lockdown. Um, so that's one key, small key change that you can make. Um, again, sleep is also fundamental. I know a lot of people have struggled with sleep over the last year, um, but making sure that you are getting enough sleep for you as an individual is a huge importance towards your mental health. Um, and exercise, stimulate your brain. It doesn't have to be cardio, it can be yoga, it can be a short walk, but keeping yourself moving. You know, there's a lot of research with the importance of exercise and improvements in the mental health. Um, going back to nutrition, as I just kind of have skimmed that quite a lot, but a lot of my research has been around oily fish. Um, and we know that two longer chain omega-3 compounds in oily fish, which is mackerel, salmon, herring, sardines, kippers, all the fish that is lovely and oily, they have two long omega-3 chains called EPA and DHA. And DHA is actually one of the main cell membranes within our within our brain itself. So if you think of the, I like to explain it as a brick wall, but um, if you think of having a brick wall and it needing to be popped in with the same brick, but actually if you put it in with a different brick, it maybe loses its shape a little bit. And it's the same with DHA. We need to be having the right kinds of fats for those cell membranes and if we don't ingest those fats because they're essential fatty acids then we will start using fats from other sources such as cholesterol which make it a little bit more rigid so we want to make sure that we're having one to two portions of oily fish a week to make sure we're getting those longer chain omega-3 fatty acids which is really important for our mental well-being um, and if you don't have oily fish then i would recommend looking at supplementation you can get omega-3s from other sources um, but they're not those longer chain ones that you need. So that's kind of a key nutrition one that I always like to talk about with, with mental health. And I think lastly, it's just giving yourself a break and allowing yourself time to actually sit down and breathe. Um, how often we all do that day to day, I don't think we do it enough. Um, and just being a little bit more mindful of how you're feeling at that time um, and just coming in tune with ourselves because I think we all have such busy lives and it can be quite hard to actually just step back for five minutes and take a break and really check in with how you're feeling um so i guess without going on for too much of a tangent and speaking for too long they would kind of be my my top tips around preventive and mental health and well-being thanks sarah it's always um striking how close closely related diet and um mental health um symptoms are and or mental well-being is and um uh, just want to re-emphasize that um a good healthy um a good healthy diet rich in fruit and vegetables is key to um maintaining mental well-being as well as exercise as well as being outside um in nature um and then i want to touch on um 
isolation and um, social networks and social capital. Um, so, Paul, maybe um, uh, if we could come to you uh, to discuss those a little bit. I, I guess you see, as a psychiatrist, you see patients at the other end who who um, maybe have more um, extreme uh, symptoms. But um, what are your thoughts on on the role of of isolation? and social networks and how people can bolster those yeah <clears throat> um i think that that it it's all interrelated i think that that much of mental illness not all of mental illness comes from us becoming fundamentally disconnected from ways of meeting our needs um i know that might sound a little abstract but you know one aspect of our needs is the ability to sort of be in tune with our emotions and sort of validating or giving honor to them. Um, the others are obviously there's there's the basics about our body. There's basics about our breathing. There's basics about um, about social contact. For most people, most people need some level of social contact, and um, so there's there's sort of a, a deeper need there that we can try to ignore. Anytime we try to ignore any of these needs, that that takes sort of psychic effort, like mental effort and energy. And if we fully disconnect from those needs, then I think that it takes kind of a toll and we have sort of a little um, psychic split, so to speak, that happens inside. This is based on a gestalt therapy kind of model that we have. We take in, let's say, a belief that we should be, to, to sort of Sarah's belief, we should be X amount skinny, and so we ignore the nature of what our body is craving in terms of basic food and nutrition, then at some point a break happens and now we're having two parts of ourselves that are really battling and warring. The part of us that wants it and the part of us that, um, that is telling us to not take it. So I think in social contact, in social, um, sorry, my toddler is not wanting to go down for a nap. Um, in terms of social contact, <laughs> Sorry. If you need to go, we can come back to you. No, my wife's my wife's got her. Um, in terms of social needs and social contact, I think there's um, there's two two pieces to it. One of which is we have we have a need to be to feel connected to other people, which is a little bit different than than social contact. Contact is sort of you know being in the presence of other people, but we don't necessarily feel like an interchange or a connection or a shared experience. Um, and then there's another side to it, which we, we don't quite reflect on, I think enough, which is, um, looking at how to get other needs met. So if I'm having trouble feeling calm, sometimes I might, you know, and I can't do it on my own. I might reach out to people that are close to me to talk it out. Um, and what we're really doing is kind of leveraging relationships to help us regulate how we're feeling. And that's totally appropriate and needed to a point, but it's just keeping an, um, an eye on um, what degree we're doing that, relying or over-relying on our network and making sure there's a balance between what we do to, to take care of ourselves and how much we use um, relationships. There's sort of the extreme version where people, I'll do the two extremes. There's an extreme version where you have to use other people to help calm yourself down because you can't do anything yourself. Um, and that's can become a sort of dependency 
Um, there's even personality disorders based on that. And then there's the other side, which is probably more in line with, with um, what we define in terms of um, masculinity and the sort of social isolation that Ben can speak more about, I'm sure. Um, I don't want to speak be the only one speaking for too long. But that where we say, I don't need anything. I don't have needs. I don't need other people. I can just exist, you know, on an island alone. And so that, I think, takes a... Um, takes a toll in terms of, again, disconnecting us from our needs and, and including the nature of social connection and shared experience. So um, I don't know if that answers it, Kothar, in the long-winded way. Uh, yes, absolutely, it does. And um, I think what you pointed out very rightly is that um, it's not necessarily something that's leading to mental health disorders, but it's something that is affecting everyone's well, mental can affect people's mental well-being. Um, and I personally have been noticing people expressing um, difficulties that they're having in their lives, people who don't necessarily know me very well, and it has made me think that there is a lack of social connection more, uh, that people are beginning to um, realise, um, and as you say, it's not necessarily the number of contacts that they have, but it's how connected they feel with with others and, and maybe how um, able they are to um, communicate um, what they need to with others. Um, uh, so, uh, Ben, I'd like to come to you on the, on the same topic. Yeah, thank you. Um, again, following on, um, I'm a massive believer that connection is, is one of the most valuable mental health tools that we all have. Um, but I don't think we're taught in society how to really connect these days. I think we're taught to keep things very safe, keep people at arm's distance, not really let people in. And this ties back into the emotions. You know, a great way to actually connect with someone is to share your emotions, to let yourself be seen at a slightly deeper level. Um, and again, particularly us men, we tend to connect over a conversation about football or you know the news or something very logical rational work or these things and, and of course they can bring a level of connection but we're really if we really want to experience in my experience certainly anyhow this has been a big part of my journey really letting someone in and feeling very alive internally my heart coming alive and feeling a sense of real love and connection then I have to let someone in a little bit deeper um, and let them see me more than just information that lives outside of me but what's what's inside let, let someone feel who I am rather than just hear the rational thoughts or the rational conversation that exists around me. And when we really let someone into our world and, and we, we let them see us and we really see them, now we're getting into a really powerful space of you know, flow. Apart from anything else, we have a beautiful light energy to the conversation that we have with someone. You know, I always feel very much in flow in these kind of spaces because I love talking about this stuff. I'm not having to think too hard about what I'm saying. Often when we're with someone who we're not perhaps in the same space it's a heavier energy we come away feeling tired and drained and that isn't such a healthy form of connection so um yeah we, we i read them um, vivek murthy's book recently um called together and it really brought alive how important the sense of connection is and as paul said you know we can be surrounded by people and feel incredibly lonely you know that's not that's not what connection is connection for me really going beneath the surface to experience that um there's one other thing that I'd say that really comes alive for me in terms of mental health as well that's, again, applicable to my journey. But this question of who are you really comes up for me. And I, and I don't think many of us know who we really are. We know who we've learned to be. We know who we've conditioned ourselves to be. We know how we fitted into society. And we know all the stories that we've heard that have led us to 
to become the person we are. But I don't know if that many of us really go and do the work to learn who we really, really are underneath it all. Um, and until we know who we really, really are, it's very difficult to align ourselves. And if we're not aligned again, it's difficult to love who we are. It's difficult to love how we how we actually show up. So I think a massive part of the journey is to to understand at your core that when no one else is around, what what, what energy is inside of you? What what re- who who's the person that you really are? If you had a few days left to live, how would you really show up? What's the person that you would like to be in that place when there's no expectation? You don't have to be, have to be anyone other than yourself. Who's that person? Can we uncover that and can we live true to that person? Because now. I keep coming back to this word of alignment, but we're living in harmony. Um, and this is really central for me in terms of, of mental health, feeling good about ourselves, building a healthy relationship with the person that we are, being able to look at ourselves and feel feel a sense of pride and, and harmony in the person that we are, that we're living on purpose, we're living true to the person that we are, rather than having to wear a mask. Wearing a mask is very heavy. So that's a really central thing for me. And it's a big, it's, it, that's a lot of work, you know, uncovering who you really are, because it's, no one's taught us, and, and it's an unusual conversation, if you like. But definitely from my perspective, I had a lot of uncovering to do to learn who I really, really was, as opposed to who society taught me to be. Thank you, Ben. Some uh, very important points. Um, we are coming up to 45 minutes, so we I, I'm going to start calling up people for questions. Please do bear in mind that the session is recorded um, and we can't give individual advice, so please keep the questions general and um, questions rather than comments as well, please. Um, panel members, any other issues you'd like to discuss before we go on to questions we do have time i think there's one quite big one if in the context of mental health that we sarah touched on slightly um which is about exercise and physical activity so it's an area that i'm um that's my background so i (laughs) it's my personal uh, favorite if we're thinking about both prevention and management of um mental health i think it's an interesting one because it has a really wide spectrum set of benefits um both for physical and mental health and it seems to be working with anxiety and depression in a number of different ways there's lots of different ideas on it from its direct physiological impact via neurotransmitters or uh, supporting growth of new neurons but it also does a a range of different psychological things which are known to be really helpful for prevention and management of mental health is it kind of helps with self-image so it can help with your relationship with your body Um, it's also a good way to actually get yourself social and get out especially uh, group exercise so it tips into the social support and isolation side of things it can help you learn master a new skill and it's also really good for helping you distract yourself which I think is one of the uh, really key ways of managing um, mental health uh, a lot of the time (laughs) it's kind of bearing with it um, and I, I, I took a quick look earlier to see if there'd been any updates in where the research has got to and recommendations on specific types, because I know that's a question we quite often get asked. And it actually seems to be the case that all exercise is pretty good for mental health. Um, it seems to me to be that the biggest effect comes from doing types that you like. So there's lots of different ways people classify exercise. And if you're having to do it 
for example, in the context of housework or because you have a very active job, it's less likely to have a benefit on mental health. But doing group-based activities or activities you find fun in your leisure time seem to be really beneficial. So I would really definitely always recommend that people get active and get exercising for mental health. Absolutely. And um, with the gyms having been closed uh, for about a year here in the UK, um, we've, we've been relying on um, outdoor exercise. And actually, there are studies that show exercising outdoors um, is ben more beneficial to mental health than exercising indoors. Um, and I guess part of that is being in nature. Um, um, but and also exercising in groups and teams um, is more beneficial. And I guess the social aspect comes into that. But as you quite rightly say, doing something that you actually enjoy, which means that you're going to stick with it as well. Um, okay, so any anybody else want to mention exercise or touch on exercise or should we move to questions? I'll just mention that, um, that exercise has been proven to be, besides just the, if we look at, the roots of the benefits for mental health. If people want to talk brain science, just briefly, there's a, a chemical in our brain called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. This is kind of a, a chemical that your brain uses to tell itself to make new brain cells. It does this at baseline, and when people are depressed or anxious, these levels seem to drop. And what they found is that what is common amongst all the different antidepressants in terms of medications is that it raises BDNF back towards normal. But turns out, so does exercise. It doesn't last as long, so you've got to don't you know stop exercising. You can't just do it once and then quit. But that you can have you know ongoing sustained benefit um, from exercise in terms of your your brain plasticity. That's really interesting, Paul. And what's the um, kind of lag? So so how quickly do does the BDNF um, uh, develop, and, and how long is it maintained? So how, how long lasting is the effect from exercise, I guess, is what I'm asking. That is a great question. I believe that it tapers off within a day. So you kind of have to maybe two days. Um, and I don't know of any research. I'd have to look at that in terms of comparing kind of head-to-head -head trials of, or head-to-head -head comparison of um, exercising, say, once a week versus like every other day versus every day. Um, but I'm going to look it up right now. Yeah, I think we all need to know that. <laughs> um, I always learn so much from these conversations. Thank you. Great. Okay, so um, let's move on uh, to some questions. Um, so do raise your hand if you have questions or you can go to hbc.show and type in your question. Um, there's a chat function in the top left-hand corner there. I think Carl was first. Hello, Carl. Hello there. Um... Thank you very much for the room. I'm fast becoming addicted to the Human Behaviour Club. Um, there always seems to be something worthwhile listening to. Um, and thank you again for the opportunity to ask a question, given the, the limited time. Um, my question would be, um, I'd like the panel's opinion on the perception of anger in individuals and the role of anger in society, and how, thankfully and rightfully so, there's an awakening towards depression and isolationism and social media in youths and in adults but there's still a stigma attached to individuals suffering from anger or, or generally sort of um, 
reoccurring anger, sort of uh, generational anger as well, um, anger about the environment, and how it's it's seen as automatically classed as a behavioural problem, as an issue with that person, but on, on a level that they can easily change and not so much recognised as that person needing help and indicative of a deeper issue, even though it's just as indicative of deeper issues as um, mental health and is often caused by as depression and you know self-hatred and low self-esteem and, and etc. Good question, Carl. Um, so it's definitely a symptom or, or a marker uh, of uh, not coping, but does this, what does it mean in the broader context of mental well-being and mental health, Paul? Is that something you can answer? Sure. Um, I think of anger, I think anger can be very, you know, I, I agree, Carl, it's, it's considered socially unacceptable. Um, and, and that is itself a problem. I think that anger um, is, is a very appropriate response in certain circumstances. It's an understandable response to a feeling of powerlessness in a situation. I think amongst us men, um, it's sort of, that's the only context where it's considered sort of socially acceptable to like, that's what men are allowed to feel. You're allowed to feel angry and, and express that. Um, I think it's obviously dangerous in terms of how that's expressed. That's where we, that's the limits of it. Um, but I think that there is, um, if we think about, if you think of sort of having a little bubble around you, we'll call this like your ego bubble, and something happens to you that you get sort of hurt, you get an ego injury or like a puncture or a wound in there, there's sort of two, two emotions that are present there. There's sort of the, um, the hurt inside, the, the, that's the depression or the sadness over the wound. And then there's an anger that can come that some people can get in touch with and some people can have difficulty. And that's sort of the, the anger is pushing back on the world. It's sort of lashing out to sort of reinflate that bubble um, or repair the injury. Like, you can't do that to me. And um, I think that they're both important. Very often, if people are allowed to sort of vent their anger, it will, if it's vented in a, in a, you know, appropriate way and it actually gets out, so to speak, in sort of a catharsis, what they then find is this sort of, it's expelled itself and then there's suddenly this hollowness and that's when they can find and get in touch with the, the wound and the sadness that's there. And, and they're, they're related and, I, and sometimes, you know, anger, we could view it in that way as sort of covering up the, the hurt that's underneath. But I think that they're, they're both sort of part of a process in terms of um, when we get hurt or even push back from the world on things we, we believe we, we deserve or are part of us. It's just um, a natural sort of cycle of, of um, our relationship to the environment. So I think there's just tremendous amounts of misunderstanding um, and, and poor education about how to be able to channel that. Um, and I think that, that teenagers feel it, you know, amongst many because they're getting pushed back and have so much outrage and feelings of powerlessness at that age. And society, we're really, frankly, shitty at, sorry, we're recording, we're really bad at, uh, at being able to channel that anger into anything useful. Um, because I think that, you know, I had, I had a, um, a teacher back when I was in medical school, he, his whole thing was, you should take all of the... Um, angst that teenagers are having and channel it into activism because that's actually like something useful for them. They can feel empowered, but instead we don't do that. Instead, we, 
we medicate it or we tell them not to feel it or we, you know, we tell them to, to do something else. So um, anyway, this is Paul and I'm done speaking. Hopefully that answered my thoughts on it. Thanks, Paul. Very clearly. Um, anybody else want to chime in? I think we've, I think that's quite fully answered. Thank you so much, Carl, for your question. Um, so we move on to Lynn. Hi, Lynn. Hi, thanks for having me up. Um, Coulter, I wanted to go back to a very brief comment that you made at the beginning in, in your intro and kind of probe a little about that and also put it in the context of the title for the room today. So you made a very brief comment almost in passing about technology and the role that it's now um, playing uh in the mental health space and uh that's something that i'm very excited about because i um i've had a long career in the tech field and a long interest as well as um sort of lived experience through myself and my children with mental health issues and i'm like really excited to see technology finally being used uh, to help with mental health and wellness beyond just telehealth. Um, so I was kind of curious when you made that comment, you know, which kinds of applications of technology you were thinking about. Um, do we know about any difference, you know, putting it in the context of today's uh, topic, do we know about any differences for the adult population versus young adults with respect to types of technology or use of technology or benefits in the um, mental health space? And um, also, you know, any examples of uh, the use of or ideas for the potential use of combining storytelling or role models with technology and you know i'm not talking about michael phelps doing a commercial for talk space so a multi-part question but that's you know my question Thanks, Lynn. Um, yes, I did touch on it very briefly, um, knowing that that is such a, a large topic in and of itself. And it is something that um, we've touched on in other sessions and we probably ought to have a separate session on. Um, I do feel that it is one of the, the kind of silver linings of this last year that we have had to move um, health into the tech space, which means that we have the opportunity to look at prevention uh, far more than if it were in a clinic setting. And there's been a huge explosion of funding for health tech this year, and a large proportion of that has been in uh, the mental health space. Doesn't mean that all of that is effective, but it does mean that uh, there's more available. And what we're seeing is a shift towards prevention for the larger um, population um, and normalizing the uh, looking after your mental well-being and prevention of um, of mental health issues which is uh, very welcome i would say so we've had a company called we are mind labs 
um, give a talk on um, in the Human Behaviour Club, and they are very much looking at prevention using exactly the model that you mentioned, a combination of tech with some um, kind of light touch counselling. Uh, there are companies looking at um, also at early detection of um, deterioration in, um, in functioning. Um, there are companies looking at um, management of maybe mild symptoms. Uh, so uh, Big White Wall, which is uh, also actually in the UK, it's approved by the NHS um, as a treatment for mild mental health. Uh, disorder 